Welcome to the Continued Learning Podcast. My name is Dr. Fawn Carson, and I'm Senior Managing Editor at OccupationalTherapy.com. Today's podcast features our host, Dr. Dennis Cleary, discussing Continued Learning Podcast, Educating Future Occupational Therapists with our guest, Dr. Erica Kemp. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Uh, My name is Dennis Cleary. I'm a senior researcher at Cincinnati Children's uh, Hospital Medical Center, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Erica Kemp from The Ohio State University and a former co-worker of mine. So, Erica, could you introduce yourself and uh, just say a little bit about your background? Hello. It's so nice to be here and to see you, Dennis, as always. Uh, So I'm an occupational therapist. I graduated initially from The Ohio State University uh, with my bachelor's degree back when it was bachelor's degree. And then uh, worked primarily in pediatrics, but also acute care hospitals kind of throughout the Midwest, uh, Kansas, Wisconsin, Ohio, um, and kind of always took fieldwork students and was like, you know, I like this student thing. and then was working at the hospital up in Sandusky and started teaching adjunct in an occupational therapy assistant program. And I was like, hey, I like this teaching thing. Um, and so was was teaching there when I reconnected with you many moons ago. Um, and then eventually ended up back down here at Ohio State where I am now the, the doctoral capstone coordinator and was the fieldwork coordinator for Uh, many years before I did this. So I've worked in clinic, um, primarily in pediatric schools and and clinics, and then I taught an OT assistant program, and then I taught at an OT program, and so now I'm still here. So I've done a little bit of everything um, throughout the years. You're you're living a rich, full life, and then you got a a master's degree, if I'm not mistaken, from uh, Boston University, correct? I did. I was in their first cohort for their online post-professional master's degree. And now everyone has online degrees. Um, and then, you know, when I when I moved, so that was really great when working at the hospital and, and in the OTA program. And when I moved back down to Columbus to come work for the MOT and now OTD program, I, I did go get my post-professional OTD um, from Indiana University. So I have three different um, OT degrees. There you go. Well, that's always fun. And so um, you've now, you've had a lot of experience with fieldwork, both um, taking students and now sort of placing students as a fieldwork coordinator and now as a a capstone coordinator. So the beauty of our profession is that we now have four different entry-level points uh, to become an occupational therapy practitioner. So we have... uh, an associate's degree in occupational therapy for, an, for a, a, an OT assistant. And then there's now some bachelor's programs for OT assistants. And it seems like there's about maybe 15 of those out there that are either have started or are in, in process of developing and might even be more than that. And then we have a master's degree in occupational therapy to become a, an OTR. And then there's a doctoral degree in occupational therapy to become an OTR um, with a doctoral degree. And then there's all sorts of various doctoral degrees that are out there for for OTs. But I'm going to ask you to try to talk about the different types of experiential components, which is the um, fun word that ACOAT uses a lot for um, talking about these different types of experiences that students need that are really more about hands-on learning. So you want to talk about the differences between all four, all all of the four different degrees <laughs> and all the things. So you go with all the I, things. I'm gonna, and I'm going to take a drink of coffee. I'm going to do my best on that one. Um, yeah, so you know, I actually think that the multiple entry-level um, ways multi-entry points is a good thing because, you know, everybody has different desires and different end goals. And there might be some people that, you know, for where they are in life and where they are in the U.S., an OT assistant is perfect for them. They wouldn't have to maybe move from their families and um, and that sort of thing. And then all the way up, like you said, up through the doctoral degree. So I think the first one that's out there that most practitioners may recall is this, this observation or shadowing hours, right? And so that's that very first do I know what OT is? Um, go watch someone do therapy. And, you know, we've seen with the pandemic that it's been harder 
to get those observation and shadowing hours. Um, you know, clinics have shut down to outside visitors. And so we've actually seen a lot of programs put those type of requirements on hold where they, they're suspending it for at least for the next couple of years, the requirement for shadowing hours. Um, so that's that first level, um, observation shadowing. Once they're in a program, um, both OTA and OT levels have level one fieldwork requirements. And this is sort of that shoulder to shoulder type of experience where the student has been learning some stuff in the classroom and now they get to go out and see it. And the idea behind this one is for them to make connections from what they're learning in the classroom to what they're seeing in the clinic. These experiences are usually about 40 hours long in different settings. Um, and I think as a practitioner, those are fun because you have um, a student that has interest and excitement to come out and see an actual patient. And from a student's perspective, you as a clinician are just the coolest thing in the world. <laughs> um, and so they usually bring this like burst of energy to your practice, right? You get to um, talk with them and, and help them make connections between, you know, what is, what is a stroke? I learned about this in a book. Now, what does this actually look like? And, and some of those level ones, I remember um, back, I'm a, a little older than you are. Okay, significantly older than you are. Um, I don't know when, if, when you went through the same occupational therapy program that I went through, did you get to watch a video about level one fieldwork specifically saying that your role was just to observe and not to interact with, with patients? You know, times have really changed, haven't they? <laughs> They have. I, I do believe I saw some sort of very similar video. Um, <laughs> and, and I think that, you know, level ones are the ones where I think we've seen the most change over the years that it, I think it was very, very, you're just there to be a wallflower. Um, and I think it's, it's, there are so many different ways. And I know we can get into talking about that now or later. Um, ways that we've made changes to level ones to one, be more hands-on for the student in and two for it to be um, in a safe way and then also to kind of reduce some of the drain on clinics you know there are a lot of different as you said four different types of of experiential learning needs and how do we fit all of those into the clinic and the clinician and where can we give students practice in some of these um, hands-on things through like a simulation lab with actors, right? Standardized patient actors, faculty-led clinics, um, experiences with other professionals, um, I think is where we've seen a lot of these level ones change. Yeah, and a lot of the, the I know SimuCase um, is, is, you know, a lot of programs are using that now for level ones. And even when I was teaching in a, an undergraduate program for um, students that were interested in becoming OTs or PTs or various health professionals, we actually, um, you can get a free uh, student membership on occupationaltherapy.com. Uh, and so that was part of how they did some of their observation hours is just to, to watch some of those, those videos because, you know, during the, the height of the pandemic, as you said, it was just impossible. It was hard for, for you to place level two students, let alone, uh, you know, ob observer students that needed those hours to apply for school. And you think so. about the purpose of those observational hours, something like that is perfect. It's, is this the profession I want to go into? Do I even think I know what this is? And so, yeah, observation through, you know, video interactions or podcast interactions makes a lot of sense for observations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So those, so those are level one. And as you said, some of those now are, um, are not necessarily with live patients, uh, can be with, with simulations and that sort of stuff. And the nice thing about that is that I'm sure, you know, sometimes students would go out on level one and, you know, five patients would call in sick that day or whatever. And so they'd, you know, spend a lot of time cleaning, you know, the <laughs> mat tables or whatever they're, they're doing uh, and not as much time, you know, actually doing the, that uh, interaction with patients. But the simulations you have a little bit more control over. Sure. And I think sometimes too in in acute or rehab where the patients are there all the time. We have such medically complex patients now, much more than we used to. I mean, when I went through OT school, like there wasn't a thing called an ECMO, right? And and so so a lot of that is almost, um, it's almost too much for a level one type of experience where really we want them to be comfortable talking to patients, you know, transferring, touching patients, um, doing some basic range of motion and, and some basic ADL type of stuff and not having to worry about if I touch that yellow one, 
what could I possibly pull out, right? <laughs> So there's a lot of advantages to simulation and, and actors, that kind of thing. Finally, earning CEUs is as easy and stress-free as listening to your favorite podcasts. Just head over to occupationaltherapy.com and sign up to start earning the CEUs you need online. You'll get unlimited access to hundreds of courses, including live webinars, on-demand videos, and text courses, and the audio courses you love for just $99 per year. And if you sign up today, you'll get 13 months of unlimited CEU access for the price of 12. This is an exclusive offer for our listeners, so don't wait. Go to occupationaltherapy.com and use promo code PODCAST and get 13 months for just $99. Join thousands of your colleagues who are already earning their CEUs online with occupationaltherapy.com, an AOTA-approved provider of continuing education and an NBCOT professional development provider. And don't forget to use promo code PODCAST at checkout to get your free bonus month. Once again, that's occupationaltherapy.com, promo code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to get started today. Yeah. And then every program is going to be a little bit different in terms of what their level one ex- expectations are. And, and hopefully they're doing a good job. Programs are doing a good job of communicating that with the sites that they're using for those level ones as well. I think that's the challenge as the clinician, right? When you take students from multiple programs, well, what does this level one look like? Because level ones are really course driven by the instructor and the program more so than level twos are, right? So that level one, what is the, I think when you take, when you're the practitioner, you really do need to know from the school, what is the objective of this level one? Um, Because it's very common for us to get some clinicians that just throw students in and expect them to treat, but they're really not to that point yet. And then we have others that don't let them talk talk to a patient or anything at all. And so really, um, you're right, making sure that you know the program that you are working with, what are their expectations for that level one? And and where in that um, developmental sequence does that level one fall? So like we at Ohio State have three different level ones um, and they're sort of developmental in nature. Um, and then they, they span practice settings, right? So we have a mental health one, we have a uh, adult physical function one, and then a pediatric one. And so kind of, again, like you said, having that conversation with the program will really help you as a clinician know, what should I be doing? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So then after level ones, and everyone's going to be a little bit different in terms of OTAs and, and OT programs, and even in terms of OT programs, they're going to have different ways that they, they set those up. But but then we have our level twos. Uh, and so do you want to talk a little bit about level two field work and maybe differentiating OTA from uh, OTR um, field work? Sure. So level twos uh, is that what we think of traditionally as field work, right? Full-time immersion in the clinic um, with the uh, end goal being to create an entry-level generalist. So we want our students to come out with entry-level competency so for an OTA student, they do two eight-week rotations. Well, actually, programs may be different. They have to complete a total of 16 weeks of full-time field work. So in general, that most programs will do two eight-week rotations. And those should occur in two distinctly different settings. Um, so that might be um, a skilled nursing facility and then an outpatient or something, or it might be a pediatrics and mental health, right? There should be two different settings. And the glorious thing about occupational therapy is that we have, well, like 16, 18 different settings to choose from. Um, so there's lots of different um, ways to do that. Then for the OT student, um, they need to complete 24 weeks of field work. So again, most programs will do two rotations that are 12 weeks each. And again, the focus on that being entry-level competent. Um, so we do have a new fieldwork evaluation tool, that's the, the new FWPE, Fieldwork Performance Evaluation, that has been um, normed and studied as a valid tool, which is um, a great step forward. Which is a change of it pace. Is. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, now, you know, with ACODE does allow flexibility that programs can adopt their own tool should they um, be, you know, desire to do that. But we do have a, a validated tool now. And the items on that um, are really aimed at, again, entry-level competence. So, it, and it takes us through the OT process according to the OTPF from screening to evaluation to treatment, discharge, um, communication, professional behaviors are all items and, and sections on that FWPE for both OTA and OT alike. And I think we forget that OTAs can play a role in the evaluation process um, as delegated by the OT. Um, and so knowing that, you know, 
there are there are items that are the same for both the OT and OTA student on that level two um, rotation. So that is you know the big one, and I think that is the one that we're always trying to make sure we have enough rotations for students to get out. And um, I think there's a great opportunity for clinicians to to kind of reconnect to their alma mater or to their local school and, and work and, and take some fieldwork students. Absolutely. And then as part of those level twos, especially in some areas of the country, um, there's a, a real shortage of, of level two fieldwork placements. So what do you do about, or what, what are some kind of unique models that they're doing in terms of um, trying to both meet maybe unmet needs that are out there in the community, but also to help provide uh, for these level two students so they have a, a spot to, to have their field work? Yeah, well, I think the biggest place that we're seeing a lot of innovation happen is in the area of behavioral health, right? OT started in behavioral health. That's that's where our roots are. Um, but over the years, you know, we've sort of lost ground because of some reimbursement and other issues. Um, but I think that with the focus again on mental health in society, we're seeing um, a lot of great opportunities for us to step back in and say, hey, we can we can serve some of these needs. So that's where I see a lot of really innovative um, level two opportunities coming where, you know, they put students out at these community partners um, to serve the needs, both mental and physical health, um, in health promotion, health wellness. Um, so examples, something like a homeless shelter, um, an after-school program, um, you know, addiction recovery services. We're seeing um, a lot of opportunities there. So they'll put students out often in pairs so that they have, you know, someone else to bounce ideas off of. And then supervision is provided. You know, ACOAT requires at least eight hours per week of supervision. Um, and often you'll see those the supervision will start out more heavy in the first couple of weeks as students get their feet wet and figure out what that looks like. And then that supervision can back off to that minimum required um, and be available as needed for, for consultation. So a lot of really neat things, I think, happening. And if, if we just take a step back and think about the profession of nursing, you know, a lot of nurses will work traditional medical floors for three to five years, but then they move on. Right, and they're out in the homeless shelters, at the churches, in the schools, um, tons of really different places. Being becoming case managers, quality improvement, and I think that there's a lot of um, room for us to think about how we can do that as well. Um, and these these uh, emerging, you know, professional practice settings might be a way for us to think about that. Yeah, and I, I think that there's also a great opportunity. You know, sometimes the um, university provides that that supervision for the level twos. Other times, um, you know, it's it's kind of an agreement between a university and, you know, maybe the the fieldwork setting where they're, the setting is doing that in exchange. It's a nice way for them to, um, you know, try to explore some new um, areas of practice for them to potentially get into. And, and even some places are, are writing grants for that. And especially, as you said, you know, such an emphasis on, on mental health and wellness, especially for young people right now is, is huge. Yeah. I get really excited about that sort of thing, to be honest, with the capstone. Um, not that it doesn't, it, it's great for fieldwork, but I think the capstone is ripe for these kinds of um, unique and really exciting um, pushing the boundaries types of experiences. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about capstones and what is this capstone and what does it mean and OTA capstones and OTD capstones? right. And right. Well, the OTA at the bachelor's level does have a capstone, but it's just a project. It's a didactic sort of project. So there's no experiential piece um, required as of now. At one point that was in the draft standards and they, they redacted that um, and, and left it as a, um, a capstone. And if you think about the word capstone, right, it's, it's used across multiple professions and you're like, what does this mean? Um, and, and ultimately it should really help students kind of pull together the threads of what they've been learning. Um, and it should be in an area of their own interest. And so that can be just an academic project, but then the way it's conceptualized at the OTR level is that it also includes an experience out with a clinical community partner. Community doesn't even have to be clinical in the traditional sense. Um, so the, the OTD capstone includes both a project and experience. It's um, individualized to each student's interests. It should map back to the program's curriculum in some way. And then also should really match the, the site's needs 
um, and the site mentor's expertise. So the, the possibilities are endless, right? So we can, there are eight areas of focus for the OTD capstone. Um, and since I don't have them in front of me, I'll, I'll probably forget one, but clinical practice is just one of those areas. Um, also, advocacy, leadership, administration, program and policy development, education, theory development, and I knew I'd forget one. I say I, I was holding theory development uh, so no. because that was the one I thought you would forget <laughs> because that's the one that no one has ever done and probably will never do. That, because if but, you think you know. about it, to develop a theory in 14 weeks, like you just can't do, oh, is, did I say research? Maybe that was the one I missed. No, no you didn't. <laughs> well, that's right. Look at you at Ohio State. I know, I'm forgetting research. research. Um, but the, You're going to get in trouble when you go. You know, home. the interesting thing about it is that we, while our capstone design does have a research piece to it, we use what they've learned in research, we have very few that are actually in research. Because if you think about it, again, to write a protocol, go something through IRB, execute a study, analyze it, it's way more than 14 weeks. Um, so that is, yeah, it, it does get used more than theory development, though, for sure. Yeah. So could you talk, so as part of that capstone, I think a lot of times occupational therapists get confused about what a what is an OTD? So what is a clinical doctorate versus a, a PhD, you know, a doctor in philosophy? Could you talk a little bit about that? And and how I think sometimes when that, you know, the, the mandate or not to do the mandate, I think that was one of the issues that, that, that I think people were just confused about. And we're not asking you to take a position on the yeah, mandate. Yeah, no, the mandate, I, um, I think that both both points for the right student, you cho you make your decision. But what does that look like? And what is maybe the value of someone who does choose to go that direction? So I think that, you know, some occupational therapists, um, you know, so, so there is a difference between this idea of a dissertation of creating new knowledge. What is, you know, a, a gap in the literature? And let's try to figure out what that is versus, you know, a clinical doctorate is really about improving clinical practice. And I think we, particularly at Ohio State, have really focused on this idea of taking evidence and implementing into practice in order to achieve better clinical outcomes. How do we make practice better? Um, whether that means bringing it closer to evidence that we know works in the clinic, whether that means working within um, the setting that you're in and improving practice for the patients using your own data-driven um, decision-making. Uh, so we have an implementation science sort of um, framework to our capstone. So it's this idea of what does the student have interest in, number one. Number two, finding somebody external to the faculty that has expertise in that area of interest. And I think then it, it gives an opportunity to give exposure to students earlier to getting to those um, jobs outside of one-to-one -one acute care or whatever it may be. So someone who someday wants to be a hand therapist, how did our current clinicians get to be hand therapy, right? There, it was probably really hard to get there. They probably had to do a whole lot of really specific continuing education and there was no roadmap. And so for, for our students now, we're able to start giving them that roadmap while they're in school. And maybe there are people that are really interested in becoming a manager, an administrator, and, and hospital leadership. The capstone gives them an opportunity to figure out what is that roadmap and get some of that exposure there. So same thing for advocacy, um, you know, research. Maybe they want to do be a clinical researcher. Maybe they want to partner with an academic pro program. Maybe education. Maybe they're really interested in making sure that patient education or education of our colleagues um, as well as maybe moving someday into academia um, is effective. So, so the idea is that the project, the scholarly piece of it is clinically relevant and that it's not new knowledge that we have to create, but it is about improving outcomes. And so there's this whole process that you walk through. It's mentored, it's individualized, it's independent, um, but it really ultimately is about improving clinical practice. And I use the word clinical loosely, right? Because that might be in the community. I, I don't mean it has to be traditional medical type of settings. Right. And I've, I've uh, now mentored uh, a number of uh, capstone students from Ohio State and from several other universities. And that's part of what we're looking to do at uh, Project Search, which is the group that I'm part of at Cincinnati Children's, where we focus on transition to employment for young adults with intellectual disability. 
And so these are students that, that oftentimes have, you know, um, I'm using air quotes, graduated um, from occupational therapy. And so, um, you know, it's not that these capstone students are providing uh, occupational therapy necessarily to them, although with, um, because we're in 48 states, but with the expansion of uh, licensure portability with the OT Compact, that is one thing that I'm looking to do is to um, help support some of our, our capstone students who really want to do occupational therapy with this population um, to be able to do that. So uh, thank you, NBCOT and AOTA for working together to, to help that happen. But um, it's it's really uh, provides some nice opportunity for OT capstone students even to to present. I had one that just created uh, this 50-page document on adaptations and accommodations for job coaches who are you know either high school or college uh, prepared and don't necessarily have a ton of external um, training and how to do adaptations and accommodations to help support people in employment. It's just like just lots of great resources that they can provide. So I don't know if you have any specific stories about, you know, kind of capstones that are really cool or like just a nice synergy between a maybe a therapist and, and a capstone student that's that's kind of been a nice experience for both of them. Yeah, we, there are so many um, things I can think of. So you know, so in your traditional medical practices, I think hand therapy is a nice example of where you get so this uh, specialized set of skills that you can get exposure to that is maybe not appropriate for level two field work. It's beyond that of like just a generalist, what a generalist would know to do. Um, similarly, we've had students do things in ICUs, um, early mobility, communication, um, wheelchair seating and mobility clinics, right? So some of those more specialized niche um, areas are kind of where we tend to put our clinical practice. But we've also done some really cool things like with the zoo. So the Columbus Zoo had a real interest in kind of opening up their accessibility a little bit more. And through a number of capstone students now, we have a, a really nice continuing partnership with them. They have consistent um, sensory friendly events at the zoo. Um, and a sensory map, we have social stories for individuals that are coming. We've also looked at, you know, adult accessibility, adult changing tables in the bathrooms, making sure that people know where those are. Number of benches throughout for rest breaks for the elderly. Uh, we also even had someone do this last year, tactile maps for the low vision community um, within the zoo. So that's an example of how you can look at, well, what is this idea of universal design and increasing access for individuals with, with disabilities and partnering with um, a community entity? Um, we've also had people do things um, with uh, refugees, right? So resettlements, um, the number of things you can do there, right? Stress of the caregivers, um, cultural adjustments, um, learning to use public transportation, learning how to do meal prep and some of those kind of really nice basic things. Um, we've done the addiction recovery courts. We've done in the um, juvenile uh, court system. Um, so that, those areas are ripe for picking. Um, also, you know, with your community centers, so adaptive fitness is a big thing too. Um, adaptive kayaking, paddling, those kinds of things. Obviously, project search. Um, this idea of transition is um, really, really great for thinking about OT's role in, in high schools, right? How do we get reconnected with those individuals and really think about transition to community living, to being independent? Um, I mean, the list goes on and on. Which, and some of those things are just, um, that you're mentioning are, can be difficult potentially to, to bill for. I just was at the Canadian OT meeting last week and it's such a different system in terms of some of the, the flexibility in the, that they have in terms of how they're delivering care. Um, so that, that's part of it. Like, how do you, so obviously the zoo's benefiting the, the refugee, um, resettlement group is benefiting, Project Search is benefiting. How do you feel that the the student that's going through that capstone, how are they benefiting? You know, if it's not about range of motion and transfers and uh, manual muscle testing and all the other types of, of core, you know, uh, meat and potatoes or, uh, you know, types of things that OTs do. So how does the student benefit from these experiences? You know, the, I think the students... <sighs> They are just so happy as they go through these. I think the biggest thing that the students love is the opportunity to explore an area of interest that they otherwise would have had maybe an hour guest lecture on. 
um, and they really get to create, well, what is their three to five year goal in, in practice? What would they like to head towards? What is this niche area that they would like to explore? I think it's helped them see past traditional one-on-one fee for number of minutes types of service. Um, it expands their ideas of where they can work, what, they're, what they can do. The, the independence they gain from the capstone versus in field work, you're attached to your supervisor, right? It's, it's one-on-one, it's, I'm watching every single moment of everything that you do. Um, but in capstone, they gain some independence. It's almost a, um, a peer colleague, peer mentoring type of relationship they get to create with their mentors. We've also seen them just gain a lot of um, ability to advocate and communicate what OT is not only to other OTs, but then also outside of our profession, right? How many times have you explained what OT is? You know, but if somebody says speech therapy, people kind of understand that, or physical therapy, but occupational therapy, that's still sort of this mystery that surrounds what we do. And so these capstones, I think, are helping students be able to describe what it is that we do and then educate um, especially those mentors outside of OT. Um, and, I, and I think it's great, especially for that um, assertiveness in terms of what is our scope of practices and this is what we do. Uh, and I know when we were at Ohio State, um, physical therapy found out what these capstones were and we almost had to kind of beat them down, you know, like to say these are, and obviously we have physical therapists that are wonderful mentors, um, but, you know, we were trying to offer capstone students to occupational therapists who are interested in, in taking them on as mentors first. I don't know if you remember that or not. Or if that I was do. Time. Yeah. No, I and, do. And so, you know, we have had really successful capstones with PT mentors. Um, absolutely. But it takes the right PT that's willing to kind of think about that. And the student that can, and they do learn such assertiveness. Pelvic health, maternal health has been a great area for us to expand into, which has traditionally been a PT. But if you think about all the mental health needs of a new mom, it makes total sense that an OT should be in there. We can we can do both the mental and physical pieces that are needed for pelvic health postpartum care. So in terms of how do we... Um, or what types of, of different folks can mentor all of these different types of experiences? Do you want to go through and just talk about level ones and level twos and capstones? And what are the qualifications for each of the, the mentors for those different types of experiences? Sure. So level one fieldwork, um, it will sort of depend on the state someone is in. But you know, here in Ohio, you do not have to have a year of experience to be a level one fieldwork educator. Um, and fieldwork, level one fieldwork, as we kind of alluded to, can be outside of the profession. Again, it's someone that has expertise in that population that the student is is observing. So we see a lot of variety with level one fieldwork. It's a great way to get started. If you're like, I don't know that I can commit to taking a whole student for all those weeks, that sounds really overwhelming. Take a level one student. Um, they're usually with you for one week or maybe one time a week for five or six weeks. Um, and again, it's just it's exposure for the student with very discrete objectives, what they should actually get out of that. So there's um, so there's the only preparation really is reaching out to your local academic partner. Level twos, uh, there is a little bit more stringency um, if you are um, an OT or OTA, you need to have one year of experience before you can take a level two student. Um, and I'll say most practitioners, you know, would prefer maybe two or three years, but I've had really successful first year out um, educators. And, and I think the reason is, is they remember what the experience is like. They're so much closer to what that is, that they have um, this idea of how to create that welcoming environment, how to kind of break things down a little bit. Whereas sometimes when you get that educator that's got 25 years experience, they don't remember what, how to break it down, right? They don't even realize how advanced their thinking is. Not that they aren't amazing at um, educators as well, but I wanna encourage those new people that if you are a year out, you probably know more than you think you do. And actually the first time you take that student, it makes you realize how much you've grown and how much you do actually have to offer. Absolutely. And I think there's also a, a shout out to our occupational therapy assistants out there to um, to encourage you to, to be fieldwork educators, because I I know they're, you know, obviously um, each state is different in terms of their, their supervision. And so an, uh, an OTR needs to be involved in some way in that, in that, you know, 
um, supervision, but you know the OTA certainly can take the lead. Uh, and and I know there was an, an article a couple years ago that was, and I'm not sure if the numbers are different, but it was I think maybe 60% of OTA OTAs in their fieldwork were being supervised by an OTR for their level two instead of by an OTA. Um, and you know I think especially you know we need OTAs to mentor the next generation of OTAs as well you know instead of you know um, being able to advocate for the occupational therapy assistant as well I don't know if you No, I completely agree and and I would say and I I haven't looked at those numbers but anecdotally in my experience having done field work at an OTA I would say it was probably pretty close to 60% were OTRs and I don't really know why I think sometimes the OTAs um, maybe were only part-time um, and that can go vice versa, right? The OT might be the part-time and the OTA is part-time. Um, but I do think some confidence for our, our OTA friends and that they do know what they're doing. And and to it, it's a great way to stay involved. And it, it really helps you grow as a practitioner, I think. Um, you don't have to have all the answers, right, as the educator or the site mentor. Most of the time you're not right? Because sometimes the students, I'm like, wow, that is a question I would have never thought of. I have no idea. Um, and so, you know, sometimes just saying, that's a great question. Um, let's go look for that answer. I'm not sure. Let me get back to you on that. There are lots of ways to handle, um, you know, that, that line of questioning that you are unsure of. But honestly, most of the time you do have an answer for some of those questions. You just don't realize you do. Great. Absolutely. So that's for the for level two field work, and then for um, for capstone mentoring. Right. So, so if you are if your mentor is outside of the profession of OT, which probably fifty percent of the capstones for us are mentors that are outside of OT. Um, you know, from our perspective, the requirement is that they have expertise in that content area. So someone that is working with the refugees has content expertise in that area, whether it's a social worker or a case manager or um, a licensed professional clinical counselor, you know, whatever that profession is, the idea really for the capstone mentor is that they have content expertise. And how is that determined really um, is on a case-by-case basis, right? Depending on the OT programs, clinical threads, right, or curricular threads, and then that student's individual interest and project, and then just making sure that that mentor has something to offer um, in the way of of guidance. Now, if it isn't going to be an OT, then you do have to make sure you check your state licensure laws to make sure that there's not any need like one year of practice or something like that. But um, but yeah, it it can be really um, wider, I guess. Sure, absolutely. And I know even, um, some places, uh, if they're if the if the mentor is not an occupational therapist, they'll have sort of a tag along. Uh, who is an OT that's just you know maybe someone that has some familiarity with the area, so that they have some occupational therapist involved. And then usually, obviously, the the program will have a faculty involved, either the capstone mentor or um, a faculty member that has some expertise in that in that area as well. Right, so. yeah, and, and that may vary program to program who that is, right? It might be the capstone coordinator or it might be a faculty mentor, but yes, there, and I think that that, you know, again, thinking about these that are in these um, emerging, quote unquote, which I hate that word. I also hate the word non-traditional. In these areas of practice, we don't think about <laughs> because they're happening. They're not really emerging anymore. Um, I, I forget where I was going with that. Oh my gosh. Um, oh, right, the faculty member. <laughs> Sorry. Sometimes has to be the one to kind of just make sure we're tying it back to our scope of practice somehow, right? And so that, and so it's not that we're just letting these things run amok, right? Go learn how to be a social worker. That's not it. We're thinking about interprofessional education and interprofessional collaborative care. We know that the more brains you get around a client, the better outcomes you're going to have. So utilizing this interprofessional model is actually for the better. Yeah, absolutely. So if someone is interested in being a fieldwork educator or a capstone mentor, um, how do they go about getting training? Do you have any um, ideas on that? 
Well, there are lots of great resources that are out there. Um, so occupationaltherapy.com does have I've heard some, good things. I've yeah. heard good things. Does have some, you know, webinars and, and podcasts and such to um, kind of gain some of those skills. Um, AOTA does have a fieldwork educator certificate program. Um, it's two days long and yields a, a certificate. Um, and then Capstone is emerging. Uh, there are some... Um, resources available probably from OT programs. We have a website of some training videos for our local state mentors. And then also I, I am the chair of the DCC, the Doctoral Capstone Coordinators, the Academic Leadership Council, and we have a group. Um, is, that a, very, is that a group of AOTA folks or? It is a group you've of. you thrown on these DCC and the. Yeah, Doctoral Capstone Coordinators. So individuals like myself at all the different programs, um, there's, it's loosely called the Academic Leadership Council, where these capstone coordinators um, get together and um, kind of think about what are the issues that capstone coordinators need to be thinking about and moving forward. Um, so there is a, an amazing group. We've been very collaborative. We've been very lucky to create a culture of sharing and collaboration. Um, and so there are um, resources out there. If you're a new doctoral capstone coordinator, there's a mentoring program. Um, if you're a site mentor, there are some great continuing education um, things that have been offered not only at AOTA, but also through state conference uh, meetings. So, you know, keeping an eye out on, on your state meetings, um, as well as national conferences for some capstone specific trainings. And I know in Ohio, um, I don't live in Ohio anymore sadly but we miss uh, you <laughs> i miss you guys too but uh, i am a member of the ohio occupational therapy association so excellent are are the ohio fieldwork coordinators and and capstone coordinators still having continuing ed at the state conference every year as well right yes so there there are often fieldwork and capstone consortiums sort of by state so the ohio one we do collaborate and make sure that we've got something into the state meetings every year and and that's uh the same sort of across um, the country, so it w depending on what region you're in, you can look, AOTA has a list of what those fieldwork consortiums are. Um, so I know Florida has an active one. The Northeast, Neotech is a really active one. Um, California has one, et cetera, et cetera. So um, another good resource, yes, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And then in terms of um, productivity, because obviously it's something we all need to be concerned about, um, is there any evidence about how fieldwork um, affects productivity for, um, for a, an occupational therapist or an occupational therapy assistant? Actually, uh, there was a study in 2015 that showed that taking a student has no impact on productivity for the therapist. That was specifically to OT. And there's a more recent study that came out with from physical therapy in the last two years, um, again, showing that across settings in an academic medical center that there was no impact to productivity um, for those that took uh, students. So I know, you know, physical therapy is not OT, but it's very, their model is very similar to ours as far as I think we can generalize that one. Um, so, the, and there've been a lot of really interesting ways to think about um, productivity impacts. And um, if you use a collaborative model, whereas you have one educator to two students, sometimes you can recoup that productivity that, that may be lost in the first couple weeks of showing them what to do. Um, you know, so usually there is a little bit of a downturn in those first two two weeks, right? Because you have to teach the student. Um, but it seems that most of that is recapped on the end when the student is pretty independent and you've deemed them competent, right? Um, and so then that uh, two-to-one model also can be another way um, of thinking about that productivity. Yeah, and in terms of that, we're not really going to talk much about student billing and those sorts of things, but students are able to bill, um, but that changes on a regular basis and very dependent on insurance. So those are things that we would direct you to your local um, university or community college to, to talk about, you know, how to, how to mentor and and supervise students in an ethical manner. I don't know if you have how you want to add to that, but yeah, um, no, I, I and, think it's very and, important that you just look at your own local laws. Yeah, mm -hmm. and you and you talked about you know one mentor, you know, with two students, but there's also the possibility of two mentors to one student. You know, and um, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that. That's also a way, especially now that we have a lot of occupational therapists that are kind of job sharing or working part time and those sorts of things. Right. And I think that's one of the things that's that gets lost when you go to a part time job is that, you know, you think you can't work with students, but actually 
having two part-time therapists share a student works really, really well. It gives the student two perspectives on, a, on the same caseload, um, and it, it allows you to stay connected as the practitioner to what's going on. Because when you take a student, again, like I said, it does make you think a little bit. Um, and students also, they usually have an assignment where they have to look up some current um, evidence on a real life clinical patient. And so it does keep you connected. I think that the thing that we don't realize is how much more research is out there now than used to be. And if you haven't had a student or tried to look into the literature recently, um, I advise you to, to give that a try because there's a lot that can be generalized into what we're doing and just a lot more going on. And so having a student, they know how to search, right? They know what the search terms are, how to get into PubMed, how to get into CINAHL. They can pull articles. They still have access to the medical libraries from their school. So that just that update um, on what's going on can be such a benefit um, as to the and educator. I I've noticed that even the area of the country that I'm in now, um, there isn't a, a, an occupational therapy program within a couple of hours of us. Uh, and there is one that actually is gonna be putting their first level one fieldwork students out there this summer. Um, but I've, I've noticed practice is a little bit different than when I was in the big city, you know, just that, um, you know, just those access to students and kind of keeping things fresh and new and, and a lot of, um, continuing education opportunities that come through universities or community colleges. It's just a good way for all of us to stay on our game, you know, it which is, is important. I, I wish sure. that, you know, I, the one thing that's always bothered me is this gap between, you know, academia and practice. And I remember I had a couple educators say to my students, well, forget everything they taught you in the classroom. I'm going to teach you real OT out here. Well, if that was true, you would just take observation students and turn them into therapists. And so that so we have to get people to stop saying those kinds of things because the two cannot exist without each other. We cannot make practitioners without fieldwork, but we also cannot make practitioners without the academic side. And and I think that's why I love the capstone and fieldwork so much is because they are the bridge. It it is that bridge between how do people learn, what does practice look like, what do we know that works? on both sides and then how do we bring those together? Yeah, and I, I remember just being part of Ohio State's curriculum when we changed um, f to make it much more pragmatic and much more hands-on. And part of that was actually bringing fieldwork educators into the classroom and helping to be, you know, uh, not quite a graduate assistant, but, you know, a paid, you know, assistant that would help um, with a lot of those, especially the core competency types of things that, you know, sometimes, uh, some programs, when the the students go out, they're they're not quite sure how to do some of that. So I don't know if if that's happening around the country or. I think um, that or... that is a great thing for therapists to do, and those of us in the classroom love to have a an, an extra set of hands because when you're trying to teach transfers to 50 students, it's really hard to get around to everyone. So having those, so if you're interested at all in those kinds of things, reach out to your local program. I bet they would take you up on being a lab assistant, at least a guest lecturer, hands on a help for transfers or whatever that may be. Yeah, absolutely. So could you talk a little bit um, also about, um, you know, maybe some changes that have happened in the last, uh, I don't know how long you've been practicing. I've been out for 25 years. Uh, and you don't have to answer that question really, but 21, um, <laughs> 21 years. There you go. So what are some changes that you've seen in that time? Uh, you know, in terms of how fieldwork and I guess there wasn't a capstone 21 years ago, um, but how, how has that changed? Well, I think the biggest change that I can think of for, for one is that it's not required that one of your level twos be mental health. I remember that, but it is required that at least one experience be focused on behavioral health and that every fieldwork experience, no matter what, had at least one objective considering how we address psychosocial needs of clients. So even in acute care, you know, we're thinking about meeting that client's needs. I think that's one thing that's changed. But also it, it does seem to be a little bit harder for us to find um, spots for our students to go to. Um, there, there, I believe there was an article that said um, we've, we have a, a decrease in the number of um, people taking um, educators, taking students. Um, but actually there are more certificates out there than there are students. So there's this mismatch. Um, and then I think there has been um, 
there's been change in um, onboarding students. We do see some sites that are, um, you know, really controlling where they take students from. So if, if I'm in Ohio and I'm at this hospital, we've had hospitals say, I'm only taking students from these schools here in Ohio. So that ability to sort of see how practice is different in different parts of the country has gotten a little bit harder as well. Um, and I think that that idea of those first couple weeks knowing that they're going to be a little bit, l they need a little bit more time with their students, especially in those first couple weeks, that's been a little bit harder with, as you mentioned, sort of that focus on number of hours you're face to face with your client. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, I, I, I remember even my own level two experience at St. Rita's Hospital in uh, beautiful sunny Lima, Ohio. Um, they, they put my mentor, Jeff, and I um, specifically in kind of like an, an LTAC area that at the time was um, kind of didn't have a ton of patients. And they did it intentionally so that we would get done in the morning, basically, so we'd be done by lunch. And then we would kind of play is not the right or the wrong word, but he now is a hand therapist. So we spent a lot of time in, in outpatient doing hands. And then we'd go over to inpatient rehab. And it was really, he wouldn't just send me, the two of us would go and, and kind of fill in. So um, it was just a great experience to be able to see lots and lots of different areas of the hospital. And I just think that is something that would be harder to do now than, than it used to be that, you know, they used to um, be able to reduce productivity requirements sometimes, and they'll, and sometimes they'll do that at least for the first couple of weeks. Um, but I think there is more financial pressure on healthcare organizations and schools and community settings maybe than there used to be. You know, I think there's also a lot more specialization than we realize, right? So, like, if you are at a big hospital setting like that, I don't think we don't realize how much like this this therapist has become a specialist in heart and lung transplants. And to think about kind of bringing that down to entry level, and then for that person as the entry level to only get exposure to that slice, um, I think it's harder to give those wider experiences as well because of the nature of the medical setting in general. Yeah. Um, and then, what, so what's usually the, the interaction between a, like a, a fieldwork educator and the, the academic person if someone's never taken a student, the, they drop a student off and then pick them up eight or 12 weeks later? Or what did, <laughs> how does that usually work? Yeah. So, you know, and I think that's another thing that has changed a little bit in fieldwork education. I think that, you know, many of us that, you know, are, have been practitioners for a long time kind of remember that in a way, like I'm going for 12 weeks and I'll see you later. I think that, you know, standard A code standards have changed to kind of eliminate that, that fieldwork coordinators are a little bit more involved than they used to be. Um, so there, each site should have um, a timeline for their eight or 12 week placement, OT or OT, um, and kind of showing what those objectives are. How do they ladder these students from, from zero to 60, right, essentially. Um, the fieldwork coordinator also usually is in contact with that educator ahead of time, um, you know, with, with information about the curriculum of the program so that they know what they've learned, um, helping them build that timeline if they've not had that before, helping them build a student program manual. Your academic field coordinators are your friends. Um, really reach out. That's what we're there for is to help develop um, educators and sites. So if you don't have a coordinator in place already, you have none of these materials that shouldn't hold you back. Um, know that we have templates and we'll work with you to help create those things um, wherever you are. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, all the objectives and things, uh, lots of Lots of different supports that you offer to, to programs. Absolutely. And usually a midterm visit, right? So we usually love to come out and see, or at least in today's world, do a Zoom call. <laughs> Let me Zoom you um, and check in. How are things going? And that's an opportunity for both you and the student to answer questions, get resources, um, you know, make sure you're on the right track, inform um, the school because, you know, the school should be invo involved, especially if you are worried about anything at any point, your first call reach out to that filler coordinator. They're, they're happy to help you figure out, is this just a minor thing? Is this a major thing? You know, how to help you through some of those difficult time points. Gotcha. And then in terms of, so obviously as a capstone coordinator, you think fieldwork and, and capstones is an outstanding way uh, for occupational therapists and occupational therapy assistants to interact with their local university or academic programs. And I know 
you know, I'm sure you and your caps or your uh, fieldwork coordinator are going out and doing trainings for for your clinical partners. You know, that's sort of a nice way to give back to the sites is that you know to give them access to continuing education on an ongoing basis. But what are some other ways that a, an occupational therapist or assistant can interact with a, a caps with a, a community college or a university? Other than taking fieldwork and capstone students? Yes, other okay. than the thing that you want them to do. <laughs> I know, the thing that I'm like, please call me. <laughs> I will find you a student. So there's lots of different things. And again, it'll depend on the curriculum, right? So I think, you know, those standardized patient labs that we were talking about, sometimes there's opportunities to go in and help facilitate those. Um, to go into a lab, help teach transfers. Um, adjunct, you know, guest lectures are, are another great example. Um, you know, service learning is another thing that we do. So we have these ideas of how do we go out to um, community partners and provide a service that also helps them learn something about occupational therapy, um, you know, ways to, to get involved there. Um, have I forgotten anything? No, those are good, but I, oh, I do think Oh, specializations. That... There you are. Anything about Absolutely. that? <laughs> All right. Sort of another fieldworky sort of thing, but go right. ahead. What do you, special, tell us about these specializations. Special, so depending on, again, the curriculum of the site. So like at Ohio State, we have pediatric specializations. There are aging specializations. There are research specializations where often they, it's an opportunity for students to get exposure to a clinical area over and above the didactic curriculum, but not so in-depth that it's a capstone, right? It's, it's a little bit smaller. So that's another way to get connected and, and offer to take a student for a small project or something like that. Yeah, but I think it's a, a great way for um, assistants and therapists that are interested in, you know, possibly, you know, moving into academia um, because there's uh, a lot of uh, opportunities that are out there. I, I got a lot of job job offers at AOTA and I explained my job and then laughed. Uh, but anyway, um, in academia. So I think it's a good way to kind of test the water and to come in and, and to, like you said, to do a guest lecture to maybe even adjunct for a whole course. I'm helping to mentor uh, a, a young man, because everyone's a young man compared to me these days, uh, who's going to be teaching his first course in an OT program. And so just last night, he was like, how do you get students to read? I was like, uh, if you, <laughs> if you, did you just do a, I did. I said, if, if it doesn't have points, they are less likely to do it because you're competing with other faculty for their time, plus, you know, their partner and their family and their job and all the other sorts of things so um, anyway but for him he's interested maybe long term uh, in possibly becoming an academic so it's a nice way to to kind of get get a sense of um, you know what what that's like do I like this do I not like this and um, I think that there's a need right now right we have a, a bit of a faculty shortage and so I think you know taking a student in your practice and then doing a guest lecture or being an adjunct are great ways to, like you said, test the water, um, and and decide is this a direction you want to go for sure. And and there we there are especially with the explosion in the number of programs that are opening, um, there's definitely a need for faculty. So if they um, do want to connect to a, an academic program, what's the best way for them to find where an occupational therapy or occupational therapy assistant program would be? Right. So ACODE Online has Is the list. ACODEonline.org? .org, yes. Um, and they, they have the list of programs that are in all phases of accreditation. And so you can take a look at that. The fully accredited programs um, are the ones that have been through the whole self-study and online or on-site visit process. Um, and then there, and I'm going to mix it up. There are two other um, phases, candidacy and I don't remember, the, applicant. The other one. Applicant, applicant right. phase. Um, and so that that will have um, at acodeonline.org, they will have contact information for each program. And so that's a really great way just to get on an ACODE. You can sort it by state so you can find out who's near me, where am I, um, and, and reach out that way. I think that would be great. I, I think that you'll find you'd be very welcomed pretty much at any program that you contact. I love when people reach out to me. I'm like, yes, I will absolutely connect with you. And there's there's advisory boards there, and it may, as you said, may just be a a little niche area of practice. It could even be that, you know, maybe you've had a, a level two student or a, a, a cap student student or something, and there's something that you feel like you have something to really offer that program. And so, you know, call and offer. And uh, as you said, we're 
we're usually uh, very happy to to talk with folks and uh, and to work with the local practitioners because we're an applied science, you know. And so, as you said, you know, uh, living in the in the high ivory tower uh, doesn't really work. And so, um, I think that's been a huge change that I've seen in the last 25 years of practice is that I think academic programs really are working uh, hard, I think, to try to be, um, you know, better collaborators um, with um, with the, the programs. Yeah. You know, the other one is admissions pro- process, that um, a lot of schools are moving to a holistic admissions and really thinking beyond the GPA and GRE. So, we're, um, at least at Ohio State, we, we recruit practitioners to review. We read every single application that gets submitted, um, and we have this this rubric we send out and so and then um, also interviews a lot of places are moving to in-person interviews and and so help with that and again getting input of the practitioners that makes a lot of sense who do you want the future of the practice to be well wonderful well thank you so much uh, dr erica kemp for uh, spending some time with us and uh, we uh, look forward to seeing what you're going to be doing in the future and uh all the great things that Fieldwork and Capstone will be adding to the profession. Absolutely. And if anyone is out there in Ohio, I'd love to hear from you. (laughs) Is that erica.kemp at osumc.edu? It is, yes. All right. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Thanks, you too.